Are you ready for an open discussion with the best of the best and the best of what's next? Welcome to the Tony D'Urso Show. Join in on a great conversation today with some of the world's great influencers as they showcase great advice and techniques that made them the game changers they are today. Now, here's Tony D'Urso. Welcome. Thanks for hanging out with us today. We're going to chat with some gentlemen at the top of their category who I call elite entrepreneurs. We're going to talk about reimagining global philanthropy with Kirk Bowman and John Wilcox. Now, we all want to find ways to help the less fortunate. I've been doing it myself with a few volunteers for over five years now. Last year, the Southgate Foundation was formed to help even more. And you can find out more about that at TonyDURSO.com slash Southgate. And you know, it feels good. It's the right thing to do. And I know I'm helping as best as I can. But you know, guys, there's so much more to it than just volunteering and donating. And the information that we're going to talk about, it can really help grow your business, whether you're a startup or you want to grow to the next level. This is really interesting at all levels that you are, whether you're at six figures, seven figures, eight figures, or just trying to get past five. And you know, we're all about helping you and your friends turn your vision into reality. So I'm going to ask you again later, please share this with your friends. This is really important. And I want you to meet Kirk Bowman and John Wilcox. Kirk is a professor and previously was the founder of a nonprofit in Fiji that helps small Fijian coastal communities. And John, he's a founder and former CEO of the California Republic Bank. And he's active as an early age investor, excuse me, as an, he's active as an early stage investor. So that's at the very beginning, not an early age, but I guess it's the same thing. Early age, early stage. It's just my Italian. And I'll let you, I'll let them tell you more about it. Let's bring them on. Hi, John and Kirk. Welcome to the Tony D'Urso show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks, Tony. My pleasure. And you know, we're all looking forward to learning more about reimagining global philanthropy. What is it? How do we do anything with it? And how does that help us in our career, our business and so forth? So to give it proper credence, let's say, let's start from the top. Kirk, we'll start with you. What's your backstory? How did it all begin? Well, many, many years ago, when I was 23 years old, I met John Wilcox. We worked in Washington, D.C. John was at the Securities and Exchange Commission with a tie doing serious work. I was at the Council on Hemispheric Affairs um, doing quite progressive work in T-shirts and shorts. And we were very different in some of our philosophy, but we became very good friends that's lasted till this day. Later in life, I became a college professor, and I've been at the Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta, Georgia now for 23 years, and I started a nonprofit in Fiji um, as part of a large uh, National Institute of Health project, uh, multi-million dollar with lots of support, um, lots of really smart people, and John was a member of my board, and we did some really spectacular projects that all turned out to be failures. And I was trying to figure out why, if we have all of this brain power and goodwill and support and money and budget and partners, why are all these projects failing? And John came along with the answer that was uh, an epiphany for me to think about how we could do global philanthropy better. Um, and that's our ba my backstory. 
That's very interesting. And John, how about you? How did it all start? Same uh, beginning as Kirk explained. I was wearing the suit and tie every day, uh, working at the Securities and Exchange Commission in Washington, D.C., and I was, I guess, envious of Kirk wearing his T-shirts and shorts every day at work. And and as he mentioned that we, you know, we had fun in common, even though I came more from a conservative banker uh, perspective and Kirk was much more progressive, we, you know, had fun in common and we liked to, we liked to enjoy the same fun times and hobbies and, you know, over over 40 year relationship that Kirk and I have had, we've had a lot of conversations about life and politics and in a safe place. And I think one, one of the things that's most interesting about the book that we wrote is the power of different opinions and, and finding the middle ground. And, and I think that that's the beauty of Kirk's and my relationship is, you know, our friendship is the strongest and we've had been able to have many fiery conversations over the years about our different perspectives. And over time, we've, we've both gravitated towards the middle and being a little more empathetic on each and other's views. And I think that's something that really lacks in today's politics and environment. And as Kirk mentioned, I was a longtime banker. I started my career at Securities and Exchange Commission. I went to American Express. I was at Bank of America for 10 years in commercial banking. And then I started my own bank called California Republic Bank. And we grew that from a startup, which I founded at 52 million in capital. And we ended up selling the Mechanics Bank uh, with almost 4 billion in assets. And I still sit on the board of Mechanics and we're about a $19 billion bank headquartered out of San Francisco. And what I've noticed as a banker is you know, the question is, why do businesses fail? And there's a million reasons why businesses fail. I mean, it could just be flat out bad luck, or you got the wrong people, or you got a new competitor that comes in. A zillion kinds of reasons. And this, the reason, and that's exactly the reason why, as a as a community banker, which is much different than money than the money center banks, the B of A's and the Wells Fargo's. We get to know the borrower, but we would never bank a startup because startups fail. 75% of businesses, for whatever reason, fail. Even if in Silicon Valley, well-capitalized companies, super bright, the brightest people, the brightest ideas still kind of fail. So, you know, there's a reason bankers don't lend the startup. We wait three to five years to look at the historical trend. And, and once you take the, the startup risk out of, of that, then your, your chances of success go up way greater. And so when we really started looking at charities, it, it, it was a surprise to us, but in hindsight, it probably shouldn't have been that a great majority of charities fail. You wanna start a tilapia farm in Fiji, but you've never been to Fiji and you don't know anything about tilapia and you have great intentions. You want to do great work, but that doesn't solve the failure issue. And so if we, we found that if there's, there's tens of thousands of local superheroes in, in the global South that have already been doing great work in their existing communities 
And if you just find those already successful nonprofits or NGOs, as they call them in lots of places in the world, then your impact on your dollar that you give goes up six, seven, eightfold. John, you're, you're a banker. You've got strong roots in this. And you went into global philanthropy. You went into reimagining it. What's that vision like? Why did you go there? What were you seeking to to accomplish? Well, Kirk and I have been very blessed in our lives. And I think we were sitting on a beach having a, a beer together and talking and talking about how grateful we were for the place that we we were in and we wanted to give back. And we started thinking about, okay, if we give a dollar away or a hundred dollars away, we wanted to have the greatest impact, you know, because it's our money. And so we really started discussing how do we make the greatest impact? How do we give back and give thanks for all our blessings and, and the good things that have happened to us, which we were compelled to do. And so we really started um, trying to think about how do we give the money away? And Kirk, mentioned to me about this person in um in the in a really crazy favela in rio de janeiro a a, a local superhero who was super innovative he, he got john you got to meet this guy so we flew down to rio and uh got a big hug from the guy I realized the guy exudes character out of every pore and we were sold and and that was really the first step in our journey to really realizing how many great local superheroes that that exist in the world and and it's okay to be a sidekick there's it, it, not everybody needs to be the superhero there's a major role for people to be a good sidekick in helping those uh, superheroes in the local community kirk what would you like to add to that on why you went into global philanthropy well, I met this guy, Sebastian, and his story is really useful for understanding how this dynamic works. So S Sebastian is a Afro-Brazilian born into poverty. He spent age seven to 17 in a very violent juvenile detention center. He came out at age 17 and he wanted to help other kids. And he, through a series of, of missteps, stumbled across using badminton to train kids because it's addictive, it's fun, the equipment is cheap, there's lots of tournaments. And so he started to build a badminton center by hand. It took him 17 years in his favela, <clears throat> excuse me. And he built this four court badminton center and he's training the kids and the kids do not win their tournaments. And imagine here's a guy who's never played badminton himself and he's wanting his kids to win against the professionally trained elite badminton schools throughout Brazil. So he thinks about how to do it and he brings in some outsiders and they start using the standard methods of push-ups and jump rope. And he knew this would turn the kids off. So Sebastian came up with a five-step program of using samba dancing to train the kids in badminton. And within a few months, they started winning all the tournaments. Two of the kids were in the 2016 Olympics. Two were in the 2020 Olympics. They travel all over the world. It's a really remarkable story. And we actually uh, made a award-winning documentary film on Sebastian. It's called Bad and the Birdie Man. The film and the trailer and our other films are free to access. 
at www.reimagine.care. And if you watch this two minute trailer about Sebastian, you will understand how it all works. You know, why should John and I move to Brazil and set up a badminton academy when there's someone already in a community who looks like the kids in that community and can serve as a local role model? Why should we go and steal their thunder and we should be the superheroes when we, it's way better if we're the anonymous sidekicks and we just give money to Sebastian for him to expand what he's already doing. Um, and then we started finding dozens and dozens and dozens of other examples of people just as extraordinary as Sebastian doing work where you just give them a little bit of money because all of their fixed costs and their startup costs are already um, covered. You're just giving them variable costs to expand what they're doing. That is quite phenomenal. And I'm going to, after this interview, I'm going to go to it's reimagine.care, right? Correct. Yeah. I want to see that samba dancing. <laughs> It'll blow you away. <laughs> and Kirk, while, while we're on it, so I get that you've got this vision and how you did that. Why? You could do anything in the world, Kirk. Why is this important? What's the purpose behind this? Well, as John said, we have been really fortunate in our lives. And I've done a lot of work in Latin America. And I've seen that in many cases when development scholars or academics or practitioners go to Latin America, we have this perception that all of the great leadership and the great ideas come from people who look like you and me in the global north and the people in the global south are the people that need us to rescue them and save them. It's a really just an updated version of the white man's burden. And so I was really interested in coming up with something a little bit more subversive where the ideas and the leadership and the innovation are identified in often very marginalized communities in the global south with leaders that never went to college um, and we inverting that where we take the role as the sidekick and not the superhero. And John and I talked about it. He was really excited about the idea of coming up with something where we could be as anonymous as possible and just try to help these superheroes. Because these kids in these neighborhoods, they don't need role models that look like us. They need role models that look like them. And John, anything you would like to add on the purpose and why you're doing this? Yeah, I mean, it gets back to Kirk and I first wanting to give back ourselves. And I guess as a banker person in me, I just didn't want to waste my money. I didn't want the dollar I gave to somebody have have 90 cents of that dollar go to overhead or pay for, you know, a, a private airplane or something. I wanted to make sure that at least 90% of my money ended up with the intended uh, recipient or the, 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 the help that I really wanted to give. And, the, and Kirk and I really started going down that road like to really analyze all these philanthropies at, who are trying to do good work, but they fail. And we were shocked and surprised about when you, you know, how much money is wasted out there. I mean, we identified a church in Mexico that gets painted four times a year by four different church groups. 
imagine the cost and the expense just for the travel and food. And meanwhile, there's two unemployed painters in town. So I, I just think that's a real waste of money. And I know it's difficult. There's more and more opportunities to make sure uh, that your dollar has the biggest impact. And then I, we, Kirk and I decided we, we, we became really passionate about that. We, we think, you know, the fact is Americans are the most generous people on the planet. And if we can just be a little smarter with our dollar, we can have a significantly, with the same amount of dollars that are given, a, a six times or more uh, impact in the communities. And, and we, Kirk and I talk a lot about the global south, but really this idea of helping your local superheroes, be it the woman who's always there or man with somebody who's somebody's sick or caring for the elderly. There's always someone in your community that I can guarantee you they'll take that dollar and they'll stretch it out as far as they can. And those are the people that I want to empower and, and we want to give leverage to do more of the same. We're talking about reimagining global philanthropy with Kirk Bowman and John Wilcox, and you can find them at riseup.care. That's R-I-S-E-U-P dot C-A-R-E. John, we're talking about global philanthropy, and you've mentioned a little bit, it's like, I want to say it's inefficient, so much money, and I'm not going to name them, but it's not hard to find. Most, I consider most charities, nonprofits, philanthropists, not philanthropists, but charities especially, they keep most of the money. They're they're paying for their golf membership, helicopters, mansions, and other things that I think is just not right. So I so it's very inefficient. I don't think there's much oversight on it, and I like to get your take. Why is this? What is? Why does that happen? I think there's a lot of social pressure to be good and be leaders and, and uh, be uh, to try to make a difference for the better in your community. And I, I think that people use, let's, let, let's be honest, the great thing about a nonprofit is you don't have to pay taxes. <laughs> so that's a big multiplier, especially when you're in the state of California. And so I think you have people who use the tax loopholes to, to create these, this in some way. I mean, in, in the extreme cases, a facade of all the of, of, of the do gooding that they say they're doing. And the reality is they're just uh, it's it's a lifestyle for them. And uh, it's a big difference between that person and Sebastian, who we talked about earlier, who lives above the badminton court and and uh doesn't take a maybe a, a just enough to eat uh that's the kind of those are the superheroes that we like to support i like that kirk would you like to add anything more on that on why global philanthropy can be so inefficient you're muted we have all sorts of incentives that lead us to do these things. One is social media. A lot of people think that being a philanthropist on social media helps them look better to their friends. And there's even a site in Portugal called Humanitarians of Tinder that has all sorts of photos of people who use a photo of them with 
some emaciated dark-skinned child in a country in Africa or India as their dating profile picks because we think that it makes us look cool. If you're at a university, students think that they need to be involved in philanthropy to get into the best university or then to get the best job. And so we have all of these incentives for us to not only um, participate, but to take full credit and announce to the world that we are doing such good work. And so that's why the incentives are all backwards and why we have so much of this that's done inefficiently. Now, one that we'll just talk about, and it, it's tender and it's difficult to talk about, is the global volunteerism sector that's a $173 billion sector. Um, John talked about all of these projects that are done um, that are uh, not a complete, but a largely a waste of money, but there's all sorts of information about groups that go to Africa and they lay bricks on a building. And at night, the people who live there take all the bricks down and relay them because the kids are not prepared to actually lay bricks. Or we have this quite difficult situation, which is the orphan tourism industry, which is a very large industry. And we have a, a oversupply of uh, orphanage tourisms and undersupply of orphans. And so there's a huge industry of renting babies and human trafficking to uh, produce enough orphans for all of these orphan tourists who pay all of this money to these networks um, to have the orphans there when they get there. And maybe you travel to India and you spend a week doing tourism and two days working in an orphanage and that's all tax deductible. So the taxpayers are are often subsidizing the work of people to go to orphanages that are stealing babies to have enough orphans there. So this shows the extreme of how ridiculous it has all gotten. Agreed. And Kirk, John mentioned a little bit about this. We'll start with you on affluent people as I think, especially Americans, we feel it's our responsibility. It it just goes beyond what I've seen in other places of the world. So do affluent people have this kind of responsibility? If you've got a lot of money, you know, as an aside, I say constantly, I'm not interested in being a billionaire because there's no way I can eat or utilize that much food or, or resources. It's just not possible. I'd rather just help, you know, it's my Italian mindset, I think. Um, kind of perhaps a little funny, but affluent people, do they have this responsibility to help others? We all have the responsibility, whether we're affluent or not, because we have time and resources that can be used right in our own neighborhoods. There's always a, a chance to help. And if you do help, even if you volunteer in your neighborhood, it helps to erase our cynicism and helps us have a much higher sense of optimism about the world. Now, sadly, there's a couple of, the research has a couple of, of disappointing pieces. One is as income inequality grows in a country, the amount of donations um, to charity and philanthropy goes down. So as the rich get richer, there's almost a dynamic where they have to justify their wealth by thinking that the people who are not as well off 
deserve it. And they start giving less money. So in a country like Brazil that has a lot of very wealthy people and a lot of very poor people, it's one of the lowest in, in donations. The United States traditionally has had a very high level, and we are uh, overall the most generous country. But while you might not um, uh, expect it or believe it, it's actually that the elite, the top two or three percent of Americans pay a lower rate of, of uh, charity and philanthropic work than do the middle class in the United States. John, anything else to add on to that? I can just only speak to my own uh, uh, personal experience. I, as a banker, I've made billions of dollars in, in community loans, be it for businesses to grow and be successful. And I've met and know many, many billionaires. I know a lot of rich people. And the truth is, from my perspective, the ones that get involved in their community that really give back and share and really do try to make a difference for the better, and there's a lot of them, those people in general are more balanced, happier, and uh, productive, I would say. And I know a lot of people that don't, who are really rich and they don't give a penny away. So, you know, I'm, I'm not there to judge them. I'm just saying that some people just love, I, you know, I know somebody right now, he's one of the wealthiest persons in, in the world. And I could call him on a Sunday in the office and he'll, he'll answer the phone. He just loves the work. So, you, you, you know, you can't, but I, just from my perspective, the people that give back and make a difference seem to have a little more balance and perspective in their life. I understand that completely. John, in looking through your book, there's something you call inverting the model to help philanthropic success. We may have touched upon that, but I wanted to make sure that we we gave uh, some attention and addressed that. So tell us about inverting the model. Well, well, it's what we talked about before. Look, startups fail all the time. So Kirk and I could have gone to Brazil and we looked at different things. Let's let's do a startup. Let's go and do a badminton camp in Brazil or, or, or a surf camp in Colombia or a circus in Peru. I mean, those are all things that, you know, let's, let's, let's take that startup risk and, and, and then be, and then put our names in the paper and, and be, and try to be local, try to be local superheroes. And we know from our experience that that just model fails. So the, what it really means to invert the, the whole idea is to, for somebody like Kirk and I who have resources and have money to give to, to be more of the sidekick, to not try to do the startup, to not be the, the superhero. So it's okay. The world needs more sidekicks on, uh, in the world. And, and a sidekick as a banker, I was always the sad, a sidekick. I would never, if I went to a super successful business and they wanted to borrow five or $10 million to buy a piece of equipment or, you know, grow their receivables or, and, and just do more of the same. I would never step in and tell them how to run their business. I would just say, great, do, do more of the same. Here's some more money to do, do more. And, and, and that's really inverting the model. Got that thoroughly. And Kirk, anything else to add on inverting the model that we haven't already talked about? Yeah, it's, it's, as a well-educated white male, sometimes we just have it in our nature to try and take charge. And sometimes we're, we're loud, we're brash, we're audacious, 
we're incredibly confident and it's really easy for us especially in when we travel throughout the world to try and identify what people are doing wrong how we would do it different uh, etc but if you just sit back and actually observe what they're doing they're really doing incredible things and it's not only only sebastian all of the groups that we ended up working with we're able to identify innovation and creativity that they were able to use for success that as, as an outsider, not knowing the customs and having the kinship um, networks, et cetera, we would never be able to do. So they're, they're working in innovation in an entirely different ballpark. Um, and if we give them a chance, um, poor people from the global South, often people of color, can do really incredible things. Kirk, we have a large audience here, entrepreneurs, startups, small small and medium-sized businesses. And so on their behalf, we're thinking, well, how does this help me? How can this help me in my business and take it to the next level? So how can we use any of this to help ourselves or help our business? First of all, because it'll make you a, a happier person and it'll make you have more, let you have more confidence in others. And I remember having a, a conversation with John after we really started working in um, Brazil. And he told me that he had never been so successful as when he started really participating in this, in this philanthropy. Because you see a different side of, of humanity and we, you become more more optimistic. And as I said earlier, it really helps you to wipe away all of the cynicism that you have. Um, and as that, that will make you a lot more successful, no matter what your endeavor. More importantly, it'll make you happier. And really, isn't that what we're all after? I think so. I think that's what helps us do better and better in our business. John, would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, uh I'm on the board of a bank right now with 2,000 employees. I originally started my bank with nine. Um, I had a bunch of customers. One of the things that we talk a lot about is character in the book and finding people of high character because it's in, in banking, we used to always say, and we would shake hands on a deal and say, look me in the eye and pay me back. Are you going to pay me back or not? And so, believe it or not, there's a couple people that couldn't look me in the eye, and I didn't, and I didn't lend the money. So character is really important, and not only to have high character in yourself, but as a business dealing with bankers, it's always important to. That's the first thing bankers are looking for is high character. And what what is when I, when I and when I say that, I mean people that keep their word and do what they say they're going to do. And that trickles all the way down to your employees because there's nothing worse than hiring a bad employee with bad character and exiting that bad employee with bad character is a big hassle and problem. So the, the, to me, the secret is finding great employees or partners with high character and make sure that you're dealing, be it on the vendor side or the customer side, deal with people with good character. John, a couple times in this interview, you or Kirk mentioned, I believe, Global South. And I also understand from your book, there's a Global North. 
Do we need to know that, and how how and why is that important? Well, we just we we cut when we think of the global south, we think of everybody everything kind of you know, be it South America or Africa or, you know, below the equator, I guess, would be a, a, a de the definition between the global South as opposed to the global North. And the reality is, if you look at the economic uh, situation of the global South, it's just, it's just way poorer than the global North. That makes sense. And I'm, I'm wondering, gentlemen, this is really interesting because here you are both very successful in your own category, your own business, your own right. You've gotten into philanthropy. We're businessmen here. We want to learn from you. And I'm, and I'm just thinking, are there any big failures that you've had in this field that perhaps we could learn from and make sure we don't do or so forth? It's kind of just an open mic, wide open floor, John. Any of your biggest failures that you'd like to talk about and perhaps lessons learned from them? Uh, I need another hour of your time to talk about all my failures. We'll do a part two. <laughs> do a part two, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I actually, I just, there's a local high school uh, that this morning I went and I, I interviewed some of the high school grads about what their future is going to be and what they want to do. And um, I, 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 I love that participation and, and being involved in, in the local community. And I told them I've 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 had way more failures in business than I've had successes, but the good news is the successes way outweighed all the combined failures. And I'm a certified entrepreneur and deal junkie, and I, so I like to do deals. And as a banker who's done you know billions of dollars in in transactions to different businesses, uh, I I recognize that you know. I, uh, that some businesses fail and some don't and and back to the character the high character people as a banker pay you back or at least try to pay you back and i think that's super important kirk how about you biggest failure and lessons learned from it well i'm an academic because i was a multi-failed business person and i <laughs> discovered that it wasn't really my temperament i didn't get my undergraduate degree till i was 32 and so age 22 to 32 was littered with a number of failures. Um, and so it really was recognizing what am I, what am I best suited to succeed at? And it took me to age 32 to discover that it was to become an academic. And I went and got my PhD and I had a really successful and quite enjoyable career. And I learned that life is not a race, it's a journey. And, you know, I, I rarely meet anyone who is in my field who got their undergraduate degree at age 32. But for me, it turned out to be a real asset because those experiences um, in the real world um, let me understand a lot about academia that otherwise I never would have had. And I'm going to flip it. We talked about the biggest failure. How about the most significant turning point in your career, perhaps some aha moments that just changed everything for you? Uh, I will, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll tell my story is, uh, I, I, I started, I mentioned my banking career at Bank of America and I, I once lent this guy a million dollars and the business, he, had, he was worth 3 million and the business 
it was a, a, a plastic company uh, and the business failed and I had to call the loan and I called the, the guy and I said, Hey, you've triggered every covenant. <laughs> You're losing money. I mean, this thing is a wipeout. And he said, are you going to be in the office tomorrow morning? And I said, yeah. So he comes in the office and writes me a personal check for a million dollars to pay me off. He says, it's not your problem anymore. It's mine. I mean, that exemplifies character. I could tell you as a 30-year banker, that was the first and the last time I ever uh, that ever happened to me. <laughs> so, John, I'm but, going to interject. I, I presume that he's one of the persons that you looked in the eye and you shook hands and said, you're going to pay me back, right? Yeah, and he did. And so at the time I had uh, $40,000 of life savings. I think I was 27 years old. And I called him back and I said, wow, that, I, first of all, my boss loves me. You can't believe you paid me back. <laughs> and it was great character. Would you, would you mind, can I co-invest in, in some of your venture capital deals? And I did. I, he said, well, I've never done that before, but sure. So I put 40 grand into this transaction that my cost was $2 and 12, 15 years later, I sold it for over $400 a share. So, you know, following someone with good character and sticking with that person over many ups and downs uh, was a, was one of my uh, grand slams that I had in, in investing. I like that very much. And one of the things while you're speaking as well as Kirk, and I'm thinking, when a person gets very successful into a high level of productivity, it it impacts. It's impacted me the to to work and as well as to live my life, to continue on with the family, have my relationships. I think it's easier for people, and that's my opinion. Since we've had all the issues and the madness in the past couple of years, we've we've been forced to spend more time with our family and relationships. I think and thereby helped us better balance. But I'd like to know, how do you do it? How do you balance life, work, and keep everything going like that? Uh, well, I don't, uh, that'd be probably a better question for my wife, but uh, I don't know if I do a great job of it. <laughs> so uh, sometimes I get out, out of balance. But you know, when the, the thing I love to do is I love to be around people. I love building things. Uh, I love creating value and it's just a passion of mine. So it doesn't seem like a lot of work uh, because I enjoy it and I'm blessed that I can do things that I love. One of the films that we did, did and we talk about in the book, there was this guy named Gucci Fraga that started a, a local theater in a favela named Vigi Gall. And he used to say, it still says he's, he's alive as a life worth living as a life reinvented. And I also, you know, I, I sold my bank uh, five years ago and in essence retired at 55. And like, what am I going to do at 55? I can only watch so many reruns of Baywatch in my, uh, in my lazy boy. So I, uh, I, you know, I, I wanted to do something different. And that's the one thing I do love as, as a banker or a deal guy is every deal is a little different and, and, and uh, takes a little bit different perspective to understand it. And, and I like that. 
And Kirk, how do you balance life and work? Well, I really love my job. And I also think if you work with high character people, it doesn't take nearly as much time and energy. And so when we select people like Gucci Fraga or, or Sebastian or others, and we, we talk about in the book, Reimagining Global Philanthropy, how we gave 32 grants to individuals. The application is one page, um, and they don't have to do a huge impact report either. We make it very simple. We have a whole chapter on how we reimagine uh, impact assessment. And so everyone said we were out of our minds because we're giving someone $25,000 in a very poor neighborhood, and they think that for some reason that they're going to use it to go on vacation or buy a car or something like that. And we were really shocked that every single person that received those grants would detail and back up with Facebook photos or WhatsApp photos exactly how they spent every penny on. And so we didn't have to do a bunch of supervision or lose any sleep. And it became just a pleasure and a joy because we selected these high character individuals with these long track records of success. Kirk, we're always on the lookout for what brings us success and helps take our business to the next level. Are there any personal habits that you feel contribute to the success of you accomplishing your vision? I would go back to what Gucci Fraga said, which is always find a way to, to reimagine yourself and to reinvent yourself. And so as an example, Gucci Fraga, he went to Harlem as a young man um, because his, his friend was on Broadway, but he went to Harlem and he saw how community theater worked there in the 1970s. And he said, oh, this is what I have to do in Brazil. And he started this variety show called the seven o'clock show um, at the bottom of the, this favela hill in Vidigal. And it became incredibly successful. And within six, seven, eight years, a lot of the kids who are participating had become professionals. Now, most people would just continue with this, but he realized that it would become stale to both him and the kids. So he shut it down and started a brand new project called Campino Show at the top of the hill. And we all need to have these restarts and not get in these, you know, the, these day to day where every month, every year is the same. And we need these new beginnings to give us challenges, to work our creativity, to give us excitement. And I think that will bring a lot of success. John, any personal habits that contribute to the success of you accomplishing your vision? Sure. I, I mean, one of the things I think a lot about was my favorite Christmas show uh, when I was a kid called Frosty the Snowman. It was one of those animated TV shows where Chris Kringle goes to the winter warlock to try to melt his cynicism out about singing the song one foot in front of the other. And I, I'm a big believer in one foot in front of the other because as a business owner, as a banker, there's all kinds of unforeseen challenges that come up and you have to just sometimes put one foot in front of the other. I, you know, for me, as, as if somebody came to me for a loan, and they had a 500 page business plan, chances of me lending them money was probably zero. 
all I need to see is a two-page financial statement and make sure that you're making money, you got positive cash flow, and you're not super leveraged. I mean, that's about all. I, and you got good character. I mean, that's the start of of, of lending money, not uh, a 500-page report. Amazing. And I thank you, gentlemen, so much. And once again, we talked about reimagining global philanthropy with Kirk Bowman and John Wilcox. And you can find them at riseup.care. Gentlemen, lots of great information here to help us with our business. And I really am behind the philanthropy movement. I've been doing it for years all on my own. It just feels good. We do what we can. And for me, I sleep better and I know, hey, I'm helping where I can, not necessarily helping every single person. But just imagine if more and more of us helped and how that would just help the whole world. And what's interesting, and you don't even think of it, we didn't mention it in this interview, but in the action and activity of helping, more business comes back to me, more more revenue, more more opportunity that I didn't expect. And it's just from, but, but I guess it's from sending out and pushing out, it just comes back. So it's just really good. And I just wanna mention that that really helps. I just wanna thank you so much for sharing with us today. It was a very good interview. Thank you very much, partner. Hey, thanks for hanging out with me while I featured several elite entrepreneurs who took their vision to reality. We talked about reimagining global philanthropy with Kirk Bowman and John Wilcox. We talked about how to help the less fortunate, what that means to us and how that helps our own business. We discussed many things such as why global philanthropy can be efficient, why affluent people have the responsibility to help others on a global scale? Do we need superhero level philanthropists to exist at the top? We talked about inverting the model to drive philanthropic success. We talked about the better way and how this can help our fellow entrepreneurs and business people and a whole lot more. Tell me what resonated the most with you. And I want you to know that I do appreciate your listening. I look forward to your tuning in again next week. And please remember supporting the show with a nice review on Apple Podcasts. And oh, by the way, please share this with a few friends to help them too. I know I say that a lot. All right, let's use this and let's help you move on your journey to success. Thanks for remember, just take action. Success awaits those who persevere and remain steadfast despite the odds. So good seeds. Do good deeds and join me on the next episode of The Tony D'Arso Show. We hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of The Tony D'Arso Show with his key influencers. Be sure to tune in again next Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. 